Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we're going to continue our conversation with Steve Vinci about compliance and risk in a COVID world, not just risk for ourselves and our families, but for our businesses, and in particular with regard to life sciences companies, and how best to continue to navigate and protect ourselves in this new normal. Steve is a global compliance expert and president and CEO of Trestle Compliance, providing risk assessments, compliance programs, and software for biotech, pharmaceutical, and medtech innovators. Prior to forming Trestle, Steve split his private sector career between serving as in-house or outsourced senior VP and VP chief compliance officer for several life science and healthcare companies, as well as 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 a consultant, forming his own firms, as well as serving as a non-equity partner for a big four firm. Steve is counsel to a U.S. House of Representatives Oversight Committee. He has over 25 years of experience in regulatory compliance matters, from government policy and enforcement to private sector business implementation considerations. Steve, welcome back to the show. Hi, Tina. It's a real pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me back. So we had a wonderful first segment together. We touched on a lot, you know, your background, the wonderful things that you're doing with your current business, gave advice to our audience about compliance, particularly since the onset of COVID. And you also told us the very compelling story about your harrowing experience with COVID-19, which you've told us has really forced you to reconsider your own risks and how you define safety and what is safe, not just for the businesses that you counsel in your own business, but from a personal standpoint as well. Why don't we kick off the continuation of our discussion with you sharing with our listeners about how your experience with COVID has changed the way you guide businesses and clients and how the new level of emotion that you experience since COVID and the passion you have for what you do, how that's transformed who you are with your clients now. Well, thank you, Tina. I'm happy to to share that. When you literally are in the darkness alone in a hospital and you feel like you can hardly breathe and you literally don't know if you're going to make it through the night and that happens to you not once, not twice, not even three times, And the best doctors that you know tell you they don't know if you're going to make it. It really forces you to reach down deep, and I mean really deep, to really understand what's important to you. And for me, uh, and not to get too personal, I'm very respectful of people of all faiths, of different faiths, and of people of no faith. But but I'm a person of faith, and it really reinforced my faith. And what it really caused me to do, and I think this is the ultimate testament 
when you really know you love someone is uh, I said, I said to, to my God, I said, do with me what you will, but please do what's best for my daughter. So I'm sorry, I'm getting a little choked up because it's wasn't that long ago and it feels so real again. Um, and, you know, for me, that resulted in coming through the challenge. But what I've really have become re-energized about, and, and I've always been trained this way through my family. It's a very tough family, very good in, in that sense. It really taught me is like, you don't rely on anybody else to make things happen for you. You make things happen for yourself. Uh, the Marines taught me, you know, that you need to be focused on mission accomplishment. You work as a team, you lead by example. The most important kind of discipline is self-discipline. So all that came to bear at this particular moment in my life when I didn't know if my life would continue. And for me, I really felt a, a real cathartic moment when I was frankly willing to let go of my life for the benefit of someone I love. And so what, what that tells me and something I was trained um, and that I've, one of my most inspirational mentors is retired Lieutenant General John Sattler a U.S. Marine Corps. He is the leadership professor at Annapolis now and holds the Admiral Stockdale Chair of Leadership. Uh, we met back in the early 90s when he was a lieutenant colonel and I was a captain in the Marines and um, we both served on, on Capitol Hill and he was the Marine Corps liaison officer and I uh, was just uh, let go uh, by the uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps to serve on Capitol Hill at, uh, in a national security role as an advisor, as a counsel. Uh, but I stayed in the reserves as part of that. And, and I was uh, selected for promotion to major. And, and, and then Lieutenant Colonel Sattler uh, pinned on my oak leaves as a major. But he later became, as, as I shared before, Lieutenant General. And he led the battle on Fallujah in Iraq during the Iraq War. He's an incredibly authentic, inspiring man. And, and when he said, he said, you know, uh, he advises the captains of all the teams at Annapolis. And as most um, uh, athletes, men and women, uh, they, they feel as though that the reason, the best way they can lead their, their team is through their own performance. Um, but this one captain was injured and it was the big army Navy game coming up. And he could, and General Sattler could see he, he didn't know what to do. Uh, and, and he said, you know what? The best way you can lead your team is to inspire and motivate them for a cause that's greater than you. And so that, that's really what it's about. It's about inspiring and motivating others for a cause that's greater than yourself. And that's really what our country's about. And that's really what life science and medicine is about. And that's what we've seen. That's the silver lining. That's the wonderful sort of pot of gold at the end of this COVID sort of horror and that we see the rainbow emerging. And it's that when people pull together, whether it was during World War II and the greatest generation or now with COVID, you know, everyone alive today has never lived through uh, the previous pandemic. 
uh, I believe, uh, or at least certainly 99.9% of the people haven't. And so this is all brand new. Again, the, the words to me that resonated that is these Harvard doctors told me, we don't know. We don't know if you're gonna make it, Mr. Vinci. We don't know how this will end for you, Mr. Vinci. And it's the fear of the unknown that's the greatest fear of all. So when it comes to compliance, and that word itself uh, uh, <laughs> creates fear <laughs> often in the hearts and minds of business people, and they, they dread it and say, oh my gosh, compliance, they're gonna tell me what I can't do, what I shouldn't do. Um, this is nothing but bad news. Heck, this compliance officer is bad news. And so I've lived through that dynamic and have turned that around so that we unleash the power and you win with compliance. You And how do you do that? Well, well, knowledge is power. And when you know where your risks are, if you're a boater and, and you're out in the ocean and, and you don't know where the reefs or the rocks are, you're, if you have half a brain, you're going to be hesitant and, and timid and tepid. And But if you know where they are, you've done your homework, you've done the navigation charts, then you can be aggressive and, and enjoy uh, the, the ocean and push the throttle uh, and, and go for it. And, and, and same thing in business. If you know where the risks are, if you've done your homework, you've done a risk assessment, knowledge is power, and then you can unleash the power of your sales force to be aggressive within appropriate compliance boundaries. And that's the power of compliance because what you want to do is inspire compliance. And, and it's not because there's some law or some lawyer or some government telling you what to do. We've seen people don't react well to that. I don't react well to that. Um, nobody reacts well. And this sort of against our American DNA. You know, we're a country born out of revolution, throwing tea into the ocean, saying, you know, no taxation without representation. It's We're not a country, uh, no matter what the nationality or but what our ethnic background is that that likes to be told what to do. We're we're risk takers. We push the envelope. We're entrepreneurs. We're we're folks that create new things, and that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. So compliance, uh, just the sound of it, sounds sort of anti-American in a way, but it doesn't have to be. And so what what this whole experience did for me is it really underscored and gave me a lot of clarity that it's all about inspiring and motivating people to be something, uh, to be a part of something greater than just their own self-interest. So for a sales guy, it's not just about getting your bonus, buddy. It's about making sure that you sell the product credibly and ethically so that a patient's life can change. It's about changing people's lives. And you're a part of that. You're a critical part of that. So A, understand that. B, that if you don't do it well, you risk not only your own job, but you risk the company. You risk the ability of this company of bringing this product to people that need it. So connecting compliance to a greater cause and being able to articulate that with passion uh, and being able to really connect the dots. That's what this experience has really helped me to do. That is amazing and very inspirational. And I think that, you know, whether folks in our audience have been through the harrowing experience that you've been or not, I, I think your ability to take a very harrowing and scary personal experience and to frame it in a way that helps not just your clients, but our listeners and others with whom you share your message is, is really amazing. 
you know, and, and you mentioned, you know, a whole host of reasons why people should do these initial screenings and assessments, but it really isn't all that different from, you know, people knowing that they should go to the doctor, right. On a regular basis to get health screenings, um, compliance and initial risk assessments in that context are really not all that different. They're just, you know, really a health sort of assessment for a, a business. Can you share with our listeners? I mean, we've, we've touched on some of this already, those who are scared or may otherwise be reluctant to do the risk assessment. Can you share with our listeners, you know, three things or even more, if you'd like that the screening will divulge and, and how it can translate quickly into something productive and constructive and maybe not as harrowing as people would imagine it would be? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Tina. People understandably are reluctant. Uh, even the most seasoned, thoughtful, well-educated, uh, experienced business people say, you know what? I'm not sure I want some independent attorney, uh, consultant coming in here, uh, poking around, asking all these probing questions, and then creating a report uh, that is, a, in essence, a radioactive report because it says all these things we're not doing well. Uh, everyone can be better. So if someone's really focused on trying to find what's broken, they're going to find it. It's like uh, when the Department of Justice makes something a priority. I will never forget in the mid-90s, uh, former governor and attorney general Dick Thornburg uh, and I uh, were speakers at a conference and I got a chance to speak to him one-on-one. And he said, you know, Steve, you know, when the DOJ makes an issue a priority, you can guarantee two things will happen there'll be more prosecutions and there'll be more convictions. And that was in the context back then when healthcare fraud was made the number two priority after organized crime. And so similarly, a CEO rightfully, rightfully is concerned if, if someone is being hired to find what's wrong, they're gonna find it. And, and that may not be, to my earlier point, inspiring and motivating, right? So for the listeners, let me reassure them that at least the way that we conduct risk assessments. One of the first things you're gonna find is that the person conducting the assessment, if they're doing it right, is looking to understand your business. Uh, and so it, it, they're gonna find that they're gonna be asking about what is your business? How do you do your business? What, what are your business objectives? Because it's, all of this assessment only makes sense in the context of, of making your business successful again, in a very positive, constructive manner. So no, that's number one. Number two, the risk assessment, again, if done right, will be looking for good things. What's working? What is in there that uh, we can identify as, as having value from a compliance perspective? So for example, do you have a compliance officer? Do you have a compliance committee? Do you have policies and procedures, training, uh, screening, monitoring, a hotline, reporting mechanism, corrective action, discipline? Do you have any of these things in place or do you have even drafts of this in place? Uh, are they tailored to your particular commercial risk, for example, like speaker programs or meals and entertainment, et cetera? Even if they're a draft, even if, um, do you have any fair market value? Even if it's just one table that you did two years ago, well, you did it, okay? That's something. And so to catalog this and take that into account. So a risk is, so number two, a risk assessment, again, if done properly, will find good things that have done that goes to the 
diligence and intent of the company to get it right. And then finally, a risk assessment, if done right, will be very careful and thoughtful how they do address any gaps or areas for improvement and, and word it in a very thoughtful, careful, sensitive way, understanding the implications where if something taken out of context can be really blown up out of proportion and do damage uh, to the company and, and, and because that's not the goal. The goal of a risk assessment, again, is to take a very accurate objective assessment and take a, it's like a, a snapshot or, or a painting that, that captures the detail, both good, bad, and different, um, and, 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 and present that. And then with the look towards the business of, okay, where does the business want to go? Where are these risks to then risk prioritize? Again, another aspect of a risk assessment is that the biggest fear is, okay, they're going to dump all this negative information about everything we're not doing or not doing well, and then tell us we need to fix it all at once at tremendous cost. Again, if done well, that's not the case. Again, um, the thoughtful approach to risk assessment is let's scale this up. Let's scale it with the business. Not everything is immediate risk. Some are more important than others. And so let's be, again, thoughtful and calibrate the risks to the business and address the most important ones first. And, and guess what? That signals to any outside governmental authorities that this is a thoughtful organization. One of the good things, frankly, that's occurred over the past 20 years is that the government working with industry has understood, first of all, uh, has accepted the concept of risk. This may be hard to believe, but 20 years ago, general counsels uh, in many companies forbid the use of the word risk by anybody to include the compliance officer and didn't allow anyone to even write it down. Why? Because they felt that that was an inherent evidence against the company that there was less than zero tolerance for non-compliance. So any discussion of risk at that time was seen as, you know what, that could be used against us. No, we have zero tolerance against non-compliance, but we won't talk about risk. Well, thank God those days are gone. And if you go to the Office Inspector General's website, uh, you see risk uh, mentioned left and right. There's an inherent understanding now and acceptance because guess what? Uh, that's the way the world is. There's inherent risk when you get up and you get in your car. You may be a driver with a spotless record, but there's still a risk that's inherent. And so fortunately, the government now and most people also agree that uh, risk exists and, and the real thoughtful evidence of due diligence, uh, again, that the government gives credit for, if, if you're ever in trouble, is, is, a, is a thoughtful approach where a company identifies risks, scales it up, prioritizes it, and then takes action to address the risk to prevent any misconduct, et cetera. So again, uh, a lot of very positive things can come out of a risk assessment. Uh, the other thing, and not, uh, not, not the least of which is that, again, if you go through a risk assessment in a, with a thoughtful approach, uh, all of this will be communicated in conversations and build consensus and a sort of aha realization amongst your senior executive team. And it will take sort of the fear factor out of compliance. So it'll build a positive momentum towards, yeah, okay, we can do this. This is actually very helpful. And it helps build a culture of compliance as you're conducting it. So uh, the one last thing is a technical matter. Uh, the, the Department of Justice over these past um, uh, couple of years uh, 2019 and 2020 uh, did has indicated in their guidance uh, for effective compliance program and evaluating them that the most important quote first step 
for a company in designing compliance program is to conduct a risk assessment. So, you know, it's sort of like E.F. Hutton, when DOJ speaks, people listen. And so I would listen to, to that recommendation. Lots of good information there, Steve. And there's so much more I want to ask you, but I have only a few questions that I'm able to ask, unfortunately, because our time together is going by really quickly. But with everything that you just said, um, one of the things that sort of popped in my mind that I'd love your thoughts on is just, you know, when you were talking about how people didn't want to use the word risk. I mean, when I think about it in the context of it, of my practice and advising clients, there's no way that I could possibly effectively counsel clients without using the word risk, because it's really what drives business decisions is either being willing to take risks or wanting to avoid risks, needing to assess risks. So I'm glad that at least because it's, you know, risk exists, no matter what you do, as you said, you get out of the bed and, you know, get out of bed in the morning and you're already, you know, not living a risk-free existence. And frankly, you can be asleep and there's a risk of certain things happening. What do you think in terms of how leaders and others who make decisions within organizations, how do they really see the risk conversation and really specifically the compliance conversation? How has the companies, you know, different management in organizations over time how much of it is seen with respect to compliance about doing what's right versus what's required? How do you think most leaders and upper management at companies see that analysis and through what lens do they look at it? Well, well thank you, Tina, for, for asking that. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to generalize. Uh, you know, all generalizations are bad, including that one. <laughs> so I've learned to be very careful in, in, in stereotyping. Uh, but uh, I, what I can speak to are the people that I've had the, the pleasure and honor of working with, which are principally my clients and, and, and other colleagues uh, in, in the industry of life sciences. For the most part, and I've, I've seen this with physicians growing up, my dad always put patients first. He was a patient champion to, to the to the point where my mom really got mad with him. It's like, you're never home. It's, it's you're always on call. You know, it's the classic uh, husband wife tension where, um, but uh, on his, as in his last few days, he sadly died of Parkinson's. I had the opportunity, the coincidence of running into uh, you know, several of his former patients um, in different contexts. One was the ER nurse, uh, at the hospital where we had to take him at night, uh, midnight uh, when he had pneumonia. Another one was his hospice nurse. In other words, these people that didn't know each other, but they all said the same thing. Your dad was the best doctor I ever had. He did, delivered my son 38 years ago or 35 years ago, whatever it was. Um, but he put patients first and he was passionate about it. And, and his many of his colleagues, his friends that I met growing up were the same way. Why is, it, is this important to answer your question? Because I really truly believe that most people are good people. Most leaders, uh, I had the, the honor and privilege to work on Capitol Hill. 
you read and hear all these horror stories if you believed all of them. And certainly there's a lot of truth to, to that, to many of these stories. But you think uh, there's nothing but a bunch of crooks in Washington. And that's just simply not true. There are a lot of very bright, very passionate, very patriotic people in Washington. Uh, but you always have bad apples. And the Marines, they taught us, you know what, no matter what you do, there's always about 10% of your troops that you just, you know, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, they're just not going to get it. And I, I have found in life that that's a fairly good estimate. And so when it comes to leaders and what they get, my positive experience is that most of them want to do what's right. I really do believe that most, and I'm not a sort of a naive uh, pie in the sky, you know, Alice in Wonderland kind of guy. I'm, I'm a very practical down to earth uh, person who's not naive at all. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, when I fly in planes, first of all, flying in the plane is amazing in and of itself. But when you fly over like a city, whether it's Chicago, Manhattan, or Boston, or any city, and you look down and you see everything down there, you see uh, the, the, the skyscrapers, the trains, the, the, the bridges, the ships, uh, the cars, uh, everything working. And it's like, man, how does all that work at once? Well, our, our human race, uh, as much as it's flawed, is pretty amazing and people are doing their jobs. So the bottom line here is, is that I really believe most, most leaders um, wanna do what's right, but at the same time, they're under tremendous pressure to produce results, financial results, whether that's the entry-level salesperson or the CEO, meet quarterly results. Uh, and so that often um, pushes them in a place where if they're not, don't have that inner, compass that inner direction together with outside checks and balances to sort of alert them with, with the red flag. They couldn't go astray. People rationalize improper behavior for for proper things that are, that are proper in their mind. It's like, well, this is, quote, the real world. This is, quote, how it's done, end quote. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. So that's, again, where uh, proper compliance measures put in place in the right way can help further reinforce uh, doing what's right, not just what's requir required. Because if you're just focused on the latter, it'll have a numbing effect. It, again, it doesn't go back to what I stressed earlier. It doesn't inspire and motivate anyone to just follow the letter of the law just for the sake of following the letter of the law. It's you want to follow the spirit. You want to follow the meaning of why, why was this created? What, is the, what are the principles, the concerns that this was created to address? And once you understand that, you know, to prevent fraud, to prevent ripping off taxpayer dollars to the detriment of patients, to the detriment of healthcare organizations, to the detriment of you as a taxpayer, that's when you start listening to that. And when you lead with principles and values, that's what inspires people. And when you apply it in a business context as a principle-led organization, that's what gives leaders an edge. And so that's why um, I have really found that most leaders uh, are thoughtful people. They haven't gotten to where they are. If they're not, they're, they're bright, they're well-educated. And most people uh, have their minds and hearts in the right place and they're aligned. There are exceptions. There are too many exceptions, unfortunately. But again, it's often not because they started that way, but they were either felt or, or got pushed astray by competing pressures where uh, in the absence of proper controls, they might not have, uh, they, they, that happened to them. Had they been in place, they, that might not have happened to them. Wow. You know, you're, you're so inspiring. And, you know, I just really enjoy 
hearing your stories, hearing your advice. It's very practical. It's very passionate. It's very inspirational. And you know, I usually ask my my um, my guests this, and it makes me all the more reason want to ask you this following question, which is obviously you've experienced a lot. You have a terrific education, wonderful professional experience, an amazing family. You know, at this time in your life, given everything you've experienced and what you're up to now, if you were to go back in time and talk to your younger self about everything that you've experienced, both professionally and personally, and what all of that has taught you, what would you say to your younger self at this point? Well, I, I have, I've actually written about this uh, on LinkedIn. And when I was young, when I was 18, uh, I was a recruited athlete at Columbia. I was smart. And I was, if I may say, a stud. <laughs> and so I, and I thought the only two things that mattered is that you do well in school and you do well in sports and everything else follows. And, but frankly, I would tell myself, and I'd be rather harsh with myself. I'd say, look, you moron. <laughs> you know, I slap myself across the face. Wake up. Wake up. It's not all about you and how smart or how strong you are physically. It's about something bigger than just yourself. It's not about just getting good grades and setting a record weightlifting and, and, and chewing out everybody that can't do that, uh, can't do as many pull-ups as you or whatever it is that you can do and that you're so proud of. It's about inspiring and motivating others that can't do it so that you lead them as a group so that you as a team do well. You know, frankly, um, I won't use the, the harsh uh, letters or words, but I was, uh, let's just say, not a nice guy back then. I was all about me. Mm -hmm. And I just really say, you know what? In life, you have to have empathy. You have to care about other people. And, and again, I was uh, raised as a Catholic. I went to parochial school. My eighth grade teacher, Sister Mary Elizabeth, uh, pulled me aside when she heard I got accepted to a very good prep school. And um, she said, you know, Steve, I know you've been accepted, but I really think you should consider an alternative. And I said, what? And she said, I think you'd make a wonderful priest. I think you should go in the seminary. And I got very quiet. And I looked at her. I said, mm -hmm. Sister Mary Elizabeth, I don't think I can do that. She goes, why? She, and I said, well, I like girls too much and priests can't do that. And, <laughs> and, and good point. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I was right, actually, uh, in more ways than I should go into here. But in any event, um, the, the bottom line is uh, be selfless. Uh, I would tell my young self. It was always about, frankly, meeting my dad's and parents' expectations. I was really, as the oldest son, expected to really achieve great things. And, um, and I, I'm very thankful for that. They, and, and they, my father worked his butt off uh, as an immigrant here as a young kid. All I heard was your dad studying. Shh. You know, that's when I was four or five, six years old. Uh, he knew a hundred words of English when he landed here in the U.S. and he built a tremendous practice. He was a, a professor, he had patients from around the world. Uh, and it was all because he actually really cared about his patients. Now, he was really tough on me, and he and I had a very tough relationship in my uh, teenage uh, and college years. Uh, we didn't get along at all, uh, but we certainly grew very close together in, in our later years, and I really, um, frankly, miss him a lot. 
But it, that's what I would tell myself. It's like, you know what? It's not just about your grades. It's not just about performance as an athlete. It's about something much more than that. It's, and it's about, again, leading by example through empathy, through caring and performance. Performance is important, but it's not the only thing. And I think, you know, in this world, particularly in COVID, we see our healthcare professionals who I refer to as our healthcare heroes. They're the heroes of our age, the selflessness that these people, these nurses, these doctors, you know, and everyone in between, uh, the people that wheel you around in, in the wheelchairs, they wheeled me around. They're taking their life in their hands, particularly a year ago, you know, 15 months ago, when so much was not known. Um, that's really what makes a difference in people's lives. And we need to see more of that. We need to see more of that selflessness. And so again, it goes back to what I'm all about now with a much greater clarity and focus where compliance isn't about you being compliant. It's about what your actions do to affect others. It's about how you should think about the reason for compliance. And that's where, as a leader, you need to inspire, again, compliance and motivate people to be compliant. Now, you know, there's a limit to that. Let's face it. Compliance can be boring. It can be scaring, scary. And you know what? To a certain degree, it should be. But at the same time, uh, I believe, uh, you know, the glass is half full and that you can take a much more constructive, enthusiastic, positive approach to this. Uh, and if you really believe it yourself, it'll come through. People will, again, feel it in your voice. They'll see it in your eyes. They'll see it in your body language, even if it's through Zoom. And that makes a difference. That makes a connection. And that's really what it's about, I think. We shouldn't forget that we're all human beings with five senses and that we're in a very you know, physical world all too often, particularly those of us in the profession, uh, you know, whether it's law or accounting or, or, or medicine, we, we sometimes I think, particularly through Zoom, forget that we need to connect as humans. And, and that's one, one reason that again, Zoom is so hard, it's so one dimensional. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting past it, but in any event, that's what I would share is, is it's so important to remember that. Steve, I've really loved our time together. I've learned so much from you and you're so inspirational. And I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation again at some point really soon. And would love to know if you have any final thoughts for our listeners before we sign off and where they can find you. Sure. Well, again, thank you very much, uh, Tina. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. You're, you're a great uh, moderator and a great professional, and I really look forward to, to continuing our conversations. Your listeners can find me at my website at www.trestlecompliance.com, spelled the way it sounds, or on LinkedIn at Steve Vinci, uh, just Steve at Vinci, V is Victor, I, N is November, C is in Charlie, Z is in Zulu, E is in Echo, uh, and you'll find me. And uh, my uh, email address is svinci at trestlecompliance.com. So uh, whether it's on business, on compliance, or on a personal level to, uh, about COVID, I'm happy to try to answer any questions, give whatever advice I can. Uh, but the bottom line message is uh, whatever challenges life throws at you, just remember the darkest of times, remember two things, your faith and your family. And if you do that, the sun will shine 
uh, at some point, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be in two or three days, but at some point, if you hold on and you never give up and you stay enthusiastic, you stay positive, whether it's through a compliance failure or any other failure or challenge, the sun will come up and things will be better. And I think in this COVID world that we live in, that's a good reminder to have. So that's what I would leave it with. Very positive uh, message of you can win with compliance. You really can. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to next time. Thank you so much, Tina. You, You have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversation with Steve Vinci and that you will join us next week for our next interview. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.